Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I know some of you are looking at your outline and you're wondering, where are the points? That is the point. Uh, Just one big point today is what we're looking at, but we're just going to walk through uh, some texts and just allow God to say what God wants to say. We're starting a new series called Closer Than You Think, and over the next uh, few weeks um, leading up to Easter, we're going to be looking at that idea that God is a lot closer than we think. If you look throughout biblical history, You start at Genesis and you go all the way into the New Testament, you find this is something that happens over and over again. People fail to recognize just how close God is, just how near God is. And so I want us just to, over the next few weeks, I want us to look at that idea. I want us to look at the idea of God being close, God being near to us, and how often we overlook that. And sometimes people will ask me questions and and they'll say, is there something in the Bible that just really stuns you? Is there some theological concept that just blows your mind? And I know we can oftentimes go to the usual suspects. We'll say eternity. Wow, you just try to get your mind around eternity and you try to think about forever and you think about the longest period of time that you can and then you realize that doesn't even begin to touch the concept of eternity, and you realize it's more than that, and more than that, and it's more than anything. And that's mind-blowing. I'm not saying that I understand that. I don't. And sometimes we talk about the, the incarnation, Jesus coming in the flesh. We'll be talking about that in the days ahead. But Jesus coming in the flesh, fully God and fully man at the same time, no contradiction, perfect in his humanity, perfect in his deity, coexisting, uh, it's, it's a mystery to us. We can't get our head around that. And that's amazing. We talk about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, but all God. And, and that's mind-blowing. But can I tell you, there, there is a concept that probably, at least for me, and I'm not saying it should be true for you. I'm saying for me, as the more I've been thinking about it over the years, it's one concept that I keep going back to, and it just blows my mind. And that is the idea of how we are brought near to God. And that not only are we brought near to God, God comes and lives within us. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about that for very long. Maybe you've given it a a, a cursory nod. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. The Holy Spirit lives within me. But when you really think about that, that God himself drawing near to us and in doing so, draws us near to him, not only near to him, but into himself. I know you say, well, how do I, how do I begin to understand that? Well, I don't know if we can fully grasp that, but throughout the Bible, you find that this is a theme that God with his people, God dwelling with his people, God dwelling among his people in a close walk, a close relationship, you find That is a theme that goes throughout the Bible. And so I just want us to look at Ephesians chapter 2, and then I want us to go all the way back to the beginning, and I want us to work all the way to the end. 
And if you look in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. God, we give you thanks for your word. Your word is truth. Your word is eternal. Your word is trustworthy. Your word is faithful. Your word never changes. No matter what our interpretation of your truth may be, your truth never changes. No matter what we wish it might say, your word never changes. And so, Father, we pray that today you might speak to us through your word, by your word, and that you might give us understanding of your truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go back to Ephesians 2 again. But now, in Christ Jesus, we are in, those of you who are followers of Christ, you are in Christ. You are in him. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, those who were once far off, separated from him, without a relationship, outside of his family, we have been brought near to God by that death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. So what is that What does that look like, though, thematically throughout the Bible? How did we get far off? How are we brought near? And is it just being in close proximity? Or is there something more going on when we are brought near? Well, let's go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So that's a simple verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There are a few things that we we can find from this. First of all, a clear reading of that one verse will totally disprove the whole concept of evolutionary theory. It's gone. So God created man in his own image. If you believe the truth of the word of God, a plain, understandable reading of the word of God, you have to say, that kicks evolution to the curb. God is the one who created. Notice this, God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. So humanity, we're all created in the image of God. Being created in the image of God means that life has purpose, that life has meaning. No matter the the cruelest, most evil, most heinous person out there is still made in the image of God. So therefore, life is sacred. So that elevates the sanctity of life because we realize it's not just what you can contribute to society. It's not just what you may be able to do that gives you worth. No, we are created in the image of God. So life is sacred. So that in and of itself ends the abortion issue right there. 
Life is sacred. To take a life in that way is morally wrong. So you've got evolution, strike one. You've got abortion, strike two. Notice, male and female, he created them. God was not confused about gender. Male, female. That kicks gender identity on your own out the window. You don't get to pick and choose. No. It, it, it shows homosexuality, not a part of God's perfect plan. So you've got evolution. You've got the whole concept of the sanctity of life. You've got abortion. That's kicked out. And you've got the validity of some, some people want to cling to a homosexual lifestyle or choosing your own gender identity. That's all gone. In one verse. There it is. So God creates humanity in his image, puts humanity in the garden, and God enjoys fellowship with them. Adam and Eve enjoy uninterrupted fellowship with the creator God of the universe. And by the way, when you create something, you get to define what the terms are. When you're the creator. If you say, this is what it means because I made it, You have the full right to define it because you are the creator. We don't get to define our own terms. God defines the terms because God made us. God made the world. So God has the final say-so on the definition of anything. And we are different than the rest of creation. As one writer said, we are more like God than the rest of creation. No animals are made in the image of God. No landscape is made in the image of God. No, only humans bear that distinction that we are made in the image of God, meaning we, have a, we are a special creation of God. God spoke everything else into creation. He crafted humanity. So Adam and Eve are in the garden. And then we find that Satan speaks up. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? The first recorded words that we have of of Satan in the Bible, and the first thing he does is he questions the validity of God's word. And, And can I just tell you, he hasn't stopped. You look around the world today, that still goes on. Now, can we really trust the word of God? Can we really trust that's what it says? Can we, we need a modern reading. We need a modern interpretation. Jesus really didn't mean that. What he really meant was, no, no, no. Satan was doing that from the very beginning, questioning the validity of God's word. And not only questioning the validity of God's word, he's questioning and doing so God's very character. Satan is essentially saying, Eve, God's a liar. God, you can't trust him. Did God really say that? Did you hear him right? Did he really mean what he said? And then you know the story. Adam and Eve eat of the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat. They disobey God. And that perfect relationship that they enjoyed now changes. Not just changes for them, it changes for all of us. Because we're all descendants of Adam. So all of us have this problem. All of us end up being separated from God from the get-go. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They're trying to cover their sin themselves. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Some people have said, what is that? What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that, the implication is it doesn't mean that God just shows up this one time. It means that the idea is that that God had the habitual practice of walking with them, of being present with them. And they recognize this is God. And now instead of that, that joyous, peaceful fellowship they had with their creator, now there's this separation. Now they recognize their sin. We can't go before God this way. And so now there's this, this distance that happens between them. By the way, where it says the cool of the day, that word cool is the word used in Hebrew for wind. In the wind of the day. In the wind of maybe the late afternoon. We don't know exactly what time, but that idea, that idea of the wind, it's the word that sometimes is translated in the Old Testament as the Spirit. So you have the Lord God showing up and Adam and Eve recognized because of their sin. They they can't be before God in this way. And then God as an act of mercy. So they won't keep eating of the tree of life. There's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that. There's a tree of life. God said, you eat eat from this. This is what will sustain you. And God says, if they put their hand on the tree of life, they're going to continue to eat. And they're going to live forever in their sin. So as an act of mercy and also as an act of judgment, God sends Adam and Eve from the garden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We also find in here that God clothes them. They were clothing themselves in fig leaves. God clothes them in animal skins. You see what this means? Something had to die in order to cover their sin. And God is the one who killed the animals to take the skins to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness because of this sin. You see this? It's a hint, hint, wink, wink, nod, nod to the sacrifice that God would provide. It's this little hint, this little precursor. This little foreshadowing of what was to come. Because the idea now is there's a sacrifice that's involved to be able to approach God. Something has to cover sin in order to approach God. You can't just approach God any old way. You can't approach him by your own merit. You can't approach him with your own wisdom. You can't approach him with your own righteousness. It doesn't cut it. It does not give you access to the Lord God of the universe. And so God meets with Moses, and you go through the the exodus from Egypt, but God meets with Moses, and God says, I want you to worship me in a tent, in a tabernacle. It'll it'll be a place of worship. Listen to what God says. This is Exodus 29, verse 43. There, in the tabernacle, this mobile tent of worship, there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. My glory will inhabit that place. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me 
as priests, meaning the people had to have a go-between. They had to have somebody as as an intermediary between them and God. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may, here's here's the phrase again, or the word again, like in verse 45, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Build me a tabernacle. My glory will fill that tent, that tabernacle. And I will be your God. I will dwell among you. Think about how mind-blowing that concept is. God's presence, his glorious presence, everything that makes God God, his visible outworking presence will occupy a physical place on earth. And they got to see it. That the glory of God himself came and inhabited that place. Look what happens. They build the tabernacle over in Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It was so overwhelming that Moses couldn't even go inside because this glory of God fills the place. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So this cloud that led them in the wilderness, this cloud that that led them out before Pharaoh's army, this cloud that was the presence of God that they followed in the wilderness. And at night, it became this pillar of fire in the sky that they followed. This cloud and fire settled down on a physical place and filled it, occupied it. And when the cloud moved, they moved. Cloud didn't move, they didn't move. They didn't go until God said it's time to go, and God indicated it was time to go when God's presence began to move. And so they began to follow God's presence. That's how they journeyed through the wilderness. Nobody had a GPS, nobody had a plan of their own. Well, I think we're going to be here for three days, and then after three days, we're going to head out over to the west. No, they had to wait. And if they unpacked everything and got their tent set up and got all their camels and all their livestock situated and got the kids put down and everything is great and they sit down out there maybe under the, the little rain fly of their tent as it were and they're sitting there and they're whoo and then the cloud starts to move. Okay, we got to pack up. Get the kids up. We got to pack. The cloud's moving. It's time to go. But if the cloud rested upon the tabernacle for a day, two days, three days, a week, a month, they stayed put. God was leading them. So you find that through the Old Testament, at least in the first part of the Old Testament. And then we find that the temple is built. And when Solomon, David's son, dedicates the temple, the Spirit of God, the presence of God, the glory of God comes and fills the temple. And the temple, the same thing that happens with the tabernacle, happens with the temple. 
And now we've got another physical place. A physical place on earth in which the glory of God dwells. Mind-blowing. And then we get to the beginning of the New Testament. I know we've covered a lot of of geography and a lot of text, but now we're at the beginning of the New Testament. In the book of John, John writes, the Word became flesh. The Word, which is a word that he uses for Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh. Jesus was not always in the flesh. Jesus always existed. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, always existed. There's never been a time where Jesus was not. Jesus has always been there. He's eternal. But putting on flesh was something brand new. Putting on flesh was something that was different. Whenever he came in the incarnation, fully God and fully man, both at the same time. And so we find that Jesus comes in the flesh, and notice what it says. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Some translations say this, he tabernacled among us. The word literally means to pitch a tent. It's the word that's used to refer to that idea of the Old Testament tabernacle. Jesus himself came and pitched a tent among us. Jesus himself came and dwelt among us. Just as the presence of God, the glory of God indwelt that temple, that tabernacle in the Old Testament, Jesus is fully God. And we, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. So we have Jesus. He's like the embodiment of the tabernacle. He's like the embodiment of the temple. Here he is, God dwelling with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus here with the people. But it doesn't end there. Before Jesus dies, he makes a promise. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. And that word another, by the way, is a word that means one of the same kind he's going to give you a helper who is just like me is what he's saying he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him you know him and look at this last phrase for he dwells with you and will be in you He says, I'm going to pray that the Father sends his Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will come, and he will dwell with you, and he will dwell, wait a minute, in you. In the Old Testament times, you find that the Holy Spirit would come upon people. The Holy Spirit would come upon people for a specific purpose, for a specific time, and then the Holy Spirit would depart. He would empower them for a temporary purpose. And he would depart. But now here's Jesus saying, God's going to send his Holy Spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit, he will be with you forever. He will dwell with you just like God dwelt with them in the wilderness, in the tabernacle. Just like God dwelt in the temple. He will dwell with you, but he's going to be in you. And he's going to be in you forever. That's a different arrangement. That's a completely different setup. You find in Acts chapter 2, when this happens, Acts chapter 2 verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all, that is, the followers of Christ, the disciples, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven the sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Just like the fire came down and the glory showed up over the tabernacle and the glory of God fills Solomon's temple, now here are these followers of Christ and what shows up, not just one pillar of fire setting down over the whole group, no, but on each one of them, showing by strong physical manifestation the glory of God is indwelling and with each one of these people. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They began to speak in known languages. The people who were gathered in Israel or people who were gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost were there and people from different countries were hearing them testify in their own language about the glory and the power and the wonderful works of God. So what does that mean to us? Well, the indwelling began here as being permanent. It wasn't a just for a time and then it's a way. No, the indwelling is permanent. So then we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Paul writes, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Look at this. For we are the temple of of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Do you get that? Paul says, we are the temple. He's not talking about a physical church building. He's talking about the people of God. We are the temple because just as the glory of God filled the tabernacle. And just as the glory of God filled the temple, the physical temple, now the glory of God, the power of God, the spirit of God, he fills each believer. He comes and dwells within each believer. And that is how we are brought near. Listen, it's not just a matter of we're going to dwell with God. We do dwell with God, but we dwell with God because God is in us if we are followers of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Out there, distant, separated, foreign from the word of the the land of God, the promises of God, the ways of God. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
We are being, we are being grown together. We are being unified together as followers of Christ more and more knit closely together. And in doing so, we are being formed into a more suitable place for the Holy Spirit to find rest, homestead, a dwelling place, a place where he is at home. That's what we find. That the Holy Spirit is living within each person. And then as we are unified together, that, that influence, that, that fullness of God is seen as we are united together. We are his temple. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 16, 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you were in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Paul says, examine yourselves. If Christ is not in you, you are not in Christ. Think about this. We are now, as followers of Christ, very literally the sanctuary. The sanctuary. I remember growing up, little country church. I remember a group of us one night, we were, it was after Sunday evening service, and of course we had, you know, I wasn't brought up Baptist, I was brought up Methodist, but it really didn't matter because we just ate all the time, just like Baptists do. And, um, we were, a group of us kids, we were in the sanctuary. And we weren't doing anything. We weren't flipping pews or throwing things or writing on the walls or anything. But we were just, we were sitting in the floor in, in the sanctuary and we were just talking and laughing and playing. And there was this older lady at the church and she came in and uh, she just walks in and she looks at us and she says, what are y'all doing in here? Don't you know this is the sanctuary? And we were, we said, yes, we know that. It was raining outside, so we couldn't go outside and play. So we were just we were just sitting there on the floor. And she said, you're not to be in here laughing and cutting up and all sorts of things. This is the sanctuary. This is where the Lord lives. Get out of here. You need to go. Get out of here. You don't need to be in here. This is, a, this is a sacred place. And she just threw a conniption. And it was later in life that I thought, first of all, we weren't doing anything wrong. Secondly, God don't live in the sanctuary. We're the sanctuary. And thirdly, in retrospect, I wonder if God was even living in her sanctuary. Because I'm thinking the way you're acting, as grumpy as you are and as mean-spirited as you are, God ain't within 40 acres of your field, woman. For goodness sake. And if he is, he's grieved. All right? Look, and, and by the way, listen. There are things that we do with our sanctuary that we would not even dream about doing it in this worship center. It's true. There, there, there are things that if somebody came in and did something, we don't want this by any stretch of imagination, but if somebody came in and did some sort of vandalism in here, we would be astounded. We would have the nerve. I cannot believe somebody would do that to the house of God. But then we think about all the stuff we do with our own sanctuary, with the Holy Spirit living within us, and we drag him to all sorts of places and drag him into doing all sorts of things, and we we don't even bat an eye. It doesn't even faze us. Can I just tell you, that should grieve us more than 
anything happening to a physical building. What we do with our sanctuary, because the Spirit of God indwells us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the confident and favorable expectation of that future reality when we are made glorious and we are in the presence of God himself. And that only comes about because Christ is in us. Which brings us to Colossians 3, 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life, if you're a follower of Christ, is hidden with Christ in God. It's a mystery. It's a mystery to those who are outside of faith. I don't understand how you can live that way. I don't understand why you believe that way. I don't understand why you trust God's word the way you trust God's word. I don't understand why you, why you believe these certain things and live by these certain ideas that you find in an old book written by a whole bunch of dead people. I don't understand why you do that. It's a mystery to them. Our lives are hidden in Christ. Meaning, unless you understand who Jesus is, your life doesn't make any sense. Or maybe more accurately, unless you are living in Christ, your life shouldn't. If you're living in Christ, your life shouldn't make sense. It shouldn't make sense unless someone knows Jesus. It should be a mystery. It should be strange. It may be intriguing, but it's going to be confusing for those who don't know Jesus. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Not only is our life hidden with Christ, our life is empowered by him. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Do you know the only way you can have an empowered life is if you have a surrendered life? That's the only way. A surrendered life, when you surrender to Christ and allow Christ to live through you, that is the only life that is empowered. I can't go to God and say, God, I've got it all figured out. God, I want you to bless my efforts. No, no, I need to surrender to God. I surrender to Christ. I surrender to his leadership. I surrender to the movement of the cloud or the fire, and I surrender to what he wants to do. And then when God decides to do it, then I say, yes, yes, Lord, I'm going to follow you. Yes, Lord, I'm going to do it. But the only way we can live an empowered life is if we live a surrendered life because it's Christ's power living through us, not us. And we say, like we talked about last week about forgiveness. You say, well, I can't forgive that person. Well, Jesus can. Well, I can't love this person. Jesus can. Well, I can't do this particular ministry. Jesus can. You don't need to worry about, do I have the capacity to do it? You need to be concerned about, does God have the capacity to do it? The answer is yes. And if God calls you to it, then God equips you for it. And then if you are surrendered to him, then he empowers you to accomplish his purpose. That's what you find all throughout God's word. John 15, verse 5, the words of Jesus. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus says, you stay connected to me. You stay connected to me. You'll have plenty of power to do to everything that I called you to do. You get separated from me. You don't have any power. Jesus, you have power. No, Jesus, you don't have power. For without me, you can do nothing. You look up that Greek word. You look it up. You look it up. You do the, you do the word study. You know what it means? Nothing. That's what it means. No thing. You can't do anything. Anything redemptive, anything for the kingdom, anything worthwhile for the kingdom, anything that brings him glory, you can't do it without Jesus. It's impossible. 
That's why Paul prays this for the church at Ephesus, Ephesus chapter 3, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So he prays that they would be strengthened with power, how? By the Holy Spirit. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That word means to be at home. Christ will be at home in the atmosphere of your heart that is lived out. You're living out your life by faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There it is again. His presence in us, his dwelling with us, his fullness filling us. Now, how does all this play out? Well, God is going to perfect this whole idea. If you look in the book of Revelation chapter 21, John writes these words, verse 3, Then And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It's a rephrasing of what God said back in the Old Testament about his people, his people in Israel. Now he is saying, for those followers of Christ who are there, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's been made perfect. It's been made complete. Revelation 21, 22, John writes, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no place in heaven that is a physical temple that is built. He says, because the temple is God himself. The temple is Jesus himself. And there's no place where you will go because the glory of God will fill the earth, will fill the universe. As in the, in the Old Testament we find, as the waters cover the ocean. The, the glory of God is going to fill the universe. So there will not be a place that you are going to go in that reformed universe, that recreated universe where you will be outside of the glory of God. We, that's why we will be in continual worship of the Lord God. Ephesians 2 again. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What a stunning truth. God is closer than we think. If you have never made a decision to follow Christ, you are still separated from him. You are distant from him. There's nothing you can do to bridge that gap. It is a fatal error in computing terms. There's nothing that you're going to be able to do to fix that. But Christ made a way. Just as that animal sacrifice was offered there in the garden, just as those sacrifices were offered in the tabernacle and in the temple, Jesus himself was sent by God, lived a perfect sinless life, fully God and fully man. Fully God so he could pay for all of our sins, fully human, so that he could fully identify with us in our humanity. And he took our place on the cross. And he died a sinner's death, even though he had never committed a sin. He died a death that each one of us deserved. 
And then he rose to life again after three days. Ascended to heaven. He's going to return. Set all things right. But if you have never received him by faith, then you are separated from him. How do you receive him? You just simply ask. You ask him to forgive you of your sins. You turn from your sins and you turn toward him. You surrender your life. God, I want to live for, I want to live for you. I want to live for Christ. I don't want to live for myself. I don't want to live for sin. I want to live for you, God, and you alone. And we turn from our sin and ourself and we turn toward Christ alone and surrender our lives. And God's word says that we will be saved. We will be brought near, those of us who are once far off, we will be brought near by the blood of Christ. But not just brought near. That's one aspect of it. But in that bringing near, also, he indwells each one of us. And as in all the other texts we've just looked at, we become his place. We become his. We become his dwelling place. We become his temple. We become his tabernacle. We become the people who are to be filled with his glory, to be filled with his presence, to be filled with his spirit, so that we might reflect that glory to the world around us. Not only be image bearers of God, but be glory bearers of God. That he gives us his spirit. He empowers us by his spirit to accomplish his purposes. So I have endurance. I've got strength. He'll give us wisdom. He'll give us understanding. But the most beautiful thing of all, and the most mind-blowing thing of all is God's spirit within us. Through God's spirit within us and the Holy Spirit speaking to us from God's word, we have a deeper understanding of who God is. And we get glimpses. We get glimpses. Not perfect now. We get glimpses of not only what it was like when Adam and Eve dwelt in perfect union and harmony with God, but we also get glimpses. We get little glimpses, little trailers, little previews of what it's going to be when everything is set right and God says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's what we have to look forward to. If you've never made that decision, today's the day of salvation according to God's word. Make that decision to follow him today. If, you've already, if you're already a follower of Christ, can I just tell you, if you're already a follower of Christ, allow God to show you the wonder and the beauty and the splendor and the glory of the reality that God's Spirit, He lives within you. Surrender your life. Surrender those areas of your life that you've been withholding. Surrender those to Him. Allow Him to work. He is the one who knows best. He knows the plan. We don't know it. He does. We know the general idea. We don't know specifically how it's going to work out. Surrender that to Him. If you know Him, surrender Surrender completely to him. If you don't know him, walk to him, cry to him, run to him, surrender to him, and he will save you. He's closer. He's so much closer than we think. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth found in your word traced all the way through. God, we didn't begin to scratch the surface. You dwelling among your people, you dwelling in your people, your people hidden in Christ. 
It is an overwhelming reality. So God, I pray that we would find joy in that, peace in that, strength in that, encouragement in that. That you are with us, in us, and we are in Christ if we are followers of Christ. Father, I pray for anybody here today, watching or listening, either now or later. God, I pray that you would bring conviction, that you would reveal your holiness, that you would show your mercy and your love would be realized, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us demonstrated your love in that way and christ dying for us was not only showing us the seriousness with which you take sin but also the great mercy that you're extending to us through christ father i pray today would be the day that many would say yes to you brother i pray if any of us may be wrestling with something that we're needing to surrender something that's going on within our own sanctuaries as it were god i pray that today would be the day we would say Father, I just want to lay this before you. Fill me, use me, cleanse me, change me, transform me into the likeness of Jesus for your glory alone. Father, you work in this time as you see fit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.